Today's show is brought to you by HelloFresh. For $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com and enter the code PROBABLY30. Probably science. Hey everyone, welcome to Probably Science on the Road. We're recording on location. As people can tell from this background music, that yeah. we're, we haven't licensed this. I don't know if we have to Greek out everything I, in the background. I'm pretty sure it's going to be just a vague beat that you can hear in the background. Yeah. What we're doing is our friends are producing a daytime comedy show, a brunch comedy show on Sunday afternoon called Red Eye Comedy. Check it out. I hope they'll be doing more of them. And we've stolen one of the performers on the show before... She goes up. I've, I've wanted you on the show for ages, but you're always in different either coasts or countries. It's a fantastic Jenny, Jenna Friedman. You can call me Jenny. Um, I had a track coach in high school call me that. Um, yeah, I'm... That was a stutter that ended up falling into a <laughs> real name by accident. So Look, I'm quite I, happy about I, yes, that. I am. Um, yeah, I'm out here for a little bit. Yeah, it's cool. We, we first met... In Chicago. Like nine years ago, I'd say, roughly. Yeah. We met at... Lakeshore? Yeah, my, my old... The, the sadly no longer with us... Lakeshore Theatre in Chicago, one of my favorite comedy venues in the world. Yes, I totally, just not to make it dark, but I thought you were going to talk, because I know you were dating, like, a porn star or something. Who who then died. Did she die? Yeah, did you not? Oh, fuck. Wait, she did die? She died of uh, breast cancer. Uh, Did I not tell you this? I didn't know that. I was about to make... Oh, because I remember the joke you made, yeah. No, I was... I don't know what joke I made back then, I'm sorry. But I, but you were just saying you were talking about like something sad that died in Chicago, and I thought you meant a person, but you meant the Lakeshore Theater. But it's also oh. a person, oh. so. Well, this one started off bleak. <laughs> Death. Oh, this, uh, I'm so sorry. That's that right. Sad. It sucked. It was a while ago now, but yeah, it really sucked. Um, hey, everyone, fun show. Yeah. <laughs> what I was gonna say is, go Jenna and I first met in Chicago, but then you went off to New York to write on Letterman and then produce on the Daily Show. Yes. And now you're back. Now you're back in LA. You just did soft focus on Adult Swim. Yeah. I saw it. It was great. You did. I thank did you. It. It was very funny. Thanks so much. Uh, oh, that's good. Andy, show up did you podcast. see it? I didn't see it. Yet. Andy. I'm sorry. <laughs> Andy was too busy drinking beer in the background. It's a. It's one of those kind of. Shows. It's on YouTube. Everybody can watch it for free. If you oh, cool. if you Google my name and campus rape, you can see one piece. <laughs> or if you Google my name, which is Jenna Friedman, Jenna with one N, and Cannibal Cop, you can see another piece. Oh, excellent. That that I'd forgotten about that guy entirely. But you not only hadn't forgotten about him, but did a really beautiful, heartwarming piece with him. Really? That's what your takeaway? <laughs> yeah, you, you know, I think it was like... You know, like, the way they've rebooted Queer Eye, and now it's all about, like, bringing out the inner person, not just to, not just giving them a makeover? Yeah. I think you did that with him. You know, you helped him really find love. Yeah. That's what I Hopefully. took from that. I mean, we're all nuanced. Cannibal <laughs> yeah. Cop contains multitudes. He does, though, and the thing is... Can you I, bet for the listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Cannibal him? Cop, Gil Valle, you could Google him, Valley, Tomato Tomato... He was an NYPD police officer who had this thing where he would go on the dark web and just plot to eat his wife and her friends. And his wife grew suspicious and put spyware on the computer and found out. And he ended up going to jail and being in solitary for seven months. Not just for plotting to eat her, but for using NYPD software to stalk one of the women. There was one instance where he wasn't just plotting to eat someone. He actually met her. Uh, It was a college friend of his. He took his wife to meet her in person. So it goes from, like, thought crime to conspiracy to commit murder. Now, we portrayed it. There's so much in the weeds of the actual case that, you know, nobody would know. But if you ask my opinion, which you haven't, (laughs) I don't, I try not to go on podcasts because I talk too much and, you know, uh, his wife was afraid of him and he would ask her like what her jogging route was. And she like, when she found all that, she just left him and didn't turn back. And so... Do I think in, like, a couple of years, could he have killed her? You know, I don't... I, I don't think it was, like, just thought crimes, but who knows? Right. I'm sure that was his defense, is, like, well, why can't I have this fantasy life for... Or was it not his defense? I don't know. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it's, it was a really interesting case about, like, you know, about 
can you just, yeah, have a fantasy life? But the react, I mean, it was just, it was really, I mean, now he's great because I think he's great because he's like <laughs> leaned into his passion and he's a horror writer. <laughs> no. I yes. Really? Oh. Yeah, so he has a book coming out. So that's, that's I think, why we need arts education in schools <laughs> to give psychopaths like an outlet. You know, like if Hitler had had more support as an artist, maybe he would have just stayed. But the have course. you seen some of his artwork? It was shitty. It was yeah, really like pedestrian, like you know, compositionally boring. Like he would have a church where the steeple was in the very middle of the picture. You never do yeah, that. Yeah, hey, very basic. I mean, come on now. Well, there are a couple of things. There are like ten thousand he... hours. You know, maybe if right. he had okay. dedicated more time to it. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't think Hitler was like artistically deep. We can't I, all be artists. I don't know much about like. I I, I composition and framing. You know you don't put the thing right in the middle of the thing. I think it look. I think it looks very. Nice. I don't know all your fancy art terms, but I know I know what I like, and I like <laughs> Hitler. Hitler. <laughs> That's funny. Take that out of context. And repurpose that bit of audio. <laughs> so Campbell Cobb's got a horror. Did you know that the judge in the case of um, of uh, Nasser, the um, Jim yeah, that. gymnastics doctor, that judge has a bunch of books. Like, she writes um, crime fiction. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, and I was like, oh, now that makes the grandstanding she was doing a little more, like, oh, self-indulgent. coming out the next Yeah, <laughs> she, yeah, she really got into that. Oh, there we go. There's a nice little Hitler. Hitler did that? Hitler. Okay, did Hitler, Hitler do that? that? Hitler did that. That's beautiful. That's a little Hitler. It's very German, Germanic. It's like, you know, in the lines. Is that an industrial plant that he's... Are you sure that's painting? Hitler? That's what the internet it says. It looks like, is it... it I don't think that's coastal, Hitler. Coastal, um, are those smokestacks? What, what is that building? Some kind of... I don't know, it looks so, like a little couple... It looks like a large cottage by the sea. A cottage by the sea. That's... I didn't know Hitler was like that talented. That's you thought it was just going to be like... Crayon. I thought it was like... Just okay. the word "you" hanging written across the canvas. Yeah, it's very avant-garde. Jenna, we like to ask our guests this before we get into the stories. What if seven? I'm just kidding. Shit, that's right. All right, okay. Other question. No. What What if anything is your background in science? What? What if anything is your background in science? And that's ranged from like you had to do a couple of courses at college, or you had a teacher you liked at high school, or you used to blow stuff up in the woods with your friends. So, I, my grandfather was a physicist who dedicated his life to cold fusion. Okay. He worked, um, he went to, like, Princeton and studied under Einstein and then University Holy of shit. Chicago, and he what? worked with Enrico Fermi. What? And he also was kind of, like, a jerk to my dad, and so I didn't really have a relationship with him until, you know, the end of his life. Where what, he was, what was his name? Lou Friedman. Newt? New? Lou. Lou. Friedman. Lou Friedman. And Adam and I both furiously Googling, which now, thanks to this recording, you can hear. I mean, literally. he didn't, he wasn't successful. He dedicated his life to cold fusion. But you could say Lou Friedman, Brookhaven Labs, maybe? I think if this is the same one, he's he got has... Well, he's got a Wikipedia page, yeah. Wait, 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 hang a on. Is this, uh, is this the same one? Is this? Uh, no, this looks like... No, that's... Wait, that's... Hold on. No, that's... No, this guy's still alive. Yeah, that's oh, oh, okay. Yeah, Different physicist. Yeah, no, Lou Freeman died. Uh, anyway, so in terms of my own background in science, I never was really good at physics, which is kind of funny. I, I think I did find an article here in the New York Times. Did he write it? In the 50s, when poodle skirts, sock hops, and the Cold War were in full swing, Lou Friedman met Judy Cron as nope. a student at Williams College in Massachusetts. Not Michigan. him. What? Nope. Damn it. <laughs> Should have Googled this before. Well, you didn't know we were going to suddenly just drop this on you. But anyhow, cold fusion. Uh, cold. It hasn't happened yet, right? Am I, am I correct? No, <laughs> I don't think it ever worked. He just, he was like almost like a failed scientist or failed artist. Well, Normally, if he was working at Princeton for a while and studying under these people, he probably got some beneficial science done on the way to... L-E-W, by the way. Oh, I think. okay. I think, maybe... Hold on. I'm seeing... I'm guessing he's not on LinkedIn. Am I correct? No, he okay. died... That's not the... Before, you know... It wasn't a screenwriter. There are a lot of Lewis Friedmans. Here we go. This is this is a Lewis Friedman talking about fusion. I don't think it's him. In 1989. Let me see. 
Well, that's gotta be. 1992, cluster fusion is illusion PFC physicists find. MIT physicists have shown that a possible new route to nuclear fusion, reported nearly three years ago, is not the phenomenon it was heralded to be, but it's based on contaminants in the experimental system. Brookhaven National Labs, yeah. That's, that's him? In 1989, Robert Bueller, Lewis Friedman, and Gerhard Friedlander of BNL, Brookhaven National Lab. Uh, I'm assuming that's what that is. Yeah, that is. It says it earlier, up, higher up. Described a reaction they, dis- they dubbed cluster impact fusion. Using an accelerator, the scientists struck clusters of heavy water molecules at a target loaded with deuterium, which is heavy hydrogen, and found nuclear fusion occurring at vastly higher levels than expected. The group believed that when the clusters of about 100 to 1,000 heavy water molecules hit the target, the energy of the collision caused some of the deuterium atoms in the cluster to fuse via a hitherto unknown surf process. Uh... You guys are reading this. I'm just thinking about how sad it is that I don't have nice things to say about my grandfather. <laughs> I, I love my imagine. dad. My dad is my favorite person on the planet, and he's like a healer. My dad is a, a doctor. What kind of doctor? He's an anesthesiologist, but now he works at the VA, and he got his acupuncture certification at 60 and has been, like, pushing acupuncture on veterans instead of, like, opioids. So he's, like, you know, he's really trying to, like work in the space of like non-addictive pain management yeah what's the acupuncture i think is our listeners are always good at correcting us on stuff but like acupuncture is i believe still not proven but it's also not being disproven in the way that most complementary medicine i mean he he does acupuncture tai chi mindfulness all that kind of stuff Uh and people really are a lot of the veterans are really just um getting I mean they themselves feel a lot better yeah I'm sure a fair amount of that just comes from just feeling cared for and cared about maybe yeah I mean the worst like I mean we're seeing it now with like the opioid epidemic but even as far back as like 2012 or before then they were pushing opioids as like what you need for chronic pain and the worst thing you can give someone with chronic pain is just like an opioid addiction right so yeah anything is better than that there's um like, there's one billionaire family whose small pharmaceutical company is responsible, and I can't remember the name now, for, is the, resp- for the majority of uh, addiction, yeah. Really? It, um, it's, uh, well, Purdue Pharma is, is OxyContin, so it would be the family that owns Purdue Pharma. It, it, yep, the Sackler family. The Sackler Who owns family. Purdue. Yeah. I didn't know it was just like one... Jesus. I mean, it's not just one. There's a revolving door between the FDA and like the pharmaceutical you know, industry. It's really, really bad. Uh, I actually weirdly did a Daily Show piece about the opioid epidemic because John, like, it was like at the time when he's like, do whatever you care about and we'll find a way to make it funny. And it was Che's, I think one of his like only pieces when he was a correspondent. I forgot he was briefly a correspondent. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, because he was, he was like on it for like a few months and then they landed SNL and managed to get him out of his daily show contract. I was so you know inspired by that not inspired but just like in awe of like how that you know how yeah. quickly that flipped or like so what was the piece you did with him for the daily show it, it was I so it was off of uh, there was a lawsuit I don't think they won but it was California two counties uh, went to see the pharmaceutical industry um because of just kind of like misleading um, people uh, about the efficacy of these drugs Mm -hmm. for chronic pain. And it reminded me of the tobacco lawsuits of the 90s. So the way that I did it was like a satire or like a parody on the the insider. Uh And so the joke was basically like, like talking about like how pharmaceutical companies behave like drug cartels and Che's like this is a conspiracy theory and then he realizes it's not and we actually had like our money shot we got this guy who wrote an article about how like you know um, opioids are good for chronic pain management and we got him to sit down with us and um, Chase said something he's like don't worry like these drugs are fine and Chase the bit was like he's like yeah, okay, cool. And it's not like anyone's paying you to say that. And then <laughs> the guy's face goes blank, and he's like, actually, I'm funded by um, Pfizer. 
So I knew that going in because I was like, we just need one person who's funded by Pfizer to tell us these drugs are fine. Yeah, you've done your homework in advance, presumably. This guy worked for the FDA and then I didn't have the cameras rolling earlier and I wish I had because he was the kindest man and we went into his home and I felt bad about it. But again, he's, you know, on the wrong side of everything. (laughs) Very nice guy, but he he had a knee injury and like he had he was in whatever he had like torn his ACL or had some like surgery and was recovering. And I asked him because I obviously didn't want to put somebody on camera who was medicated. And I was like, "Are you on opioids now?" And he actually said, "I wouldn't touch the stuff." Wow, Damn. that and was on record. You're allowed to use that part. Of that wasn't on oh, camera. Oh, the okay. cameras were setting up. <laughs> hey guys, this is the this is the piece. The pharmaceutical drug drug epidemic, I would... Yeah. Michael Che. Yeah. We'll link to that. Yeah, I've produced that piece. I mean, that's not science as much as it is, like, medicine and politics. That's really... That's... um, Well, it's definitely the abuse of pharmaceutical science. Right, right. I mean, that's... And they lie about statistics, and they... They they lie... That whole industry is so heartbreaking. So, the Martin Screlly stuff, do you know? Yeah, I just... With his arrest or his conviction yesterday, I'm starting to believe he's not a real person. Like this was a person created, so we can all feel like great. We have a scapegoat. But to here's hate. what some, uh, somebody had said that he didn't, he wasn't like convicted or whatever because of hiking up the price of drugs, but because he frauded his like his investors. Uh-huh. So like that's what they got him for. Like it's not illegal to choose the price of it. But I think in a way, like, I think he's a troll and I don't know him, but there is something weirdly noble about him doing something so egregious to call attention to an issue that the entire industry is doing. You think that was was a calculated move? I think that he's a troll. Of course, yeah. And I don't think, I don't know if he was like, I have a friend who's like a journalist who's really smart. I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to misquote him. But I think he was like, Skrelly's just fucking with the system in ways he can get away with it to expose it. He's like, it's like good to put your anger on him, but the anger should be on the system and the fact that you can hike up a drug 700%. You know what I mean? Yeah. For profit. All I, The whole industry does it. I would dial like one notch back from that and say like, I don't think he was doing it with any magnanimous intent. Like, he wasn't doing it to, like, I'm going to show you how bad this is and then they'll change the laws. If you, like, if you see a flaw. So, Alex Gibney, have you seen his, like, documentary series, Something Money on Netflix? No. He has an episode about, like, there, there was, like, a company. I don't know if it was, like, Valiant or whatever. I forget the name of the company. But they were, their whole business model, they were, like, a hedge fund. They were buying pharmaceutical companies and just cutting their R&D departments, hiking up the price of drugs, and then that was their entire business model. And I don't know if they're, like, still operational or, like, they haven't... The guy, the head guy, I don't think, has gone to jail. I'm, like, the opposite of a documentary. <laughs> I'm just like, I think this. Google it. But it was just like... You must it, know how to look it up. It's just heartbreaking that they're finding, yeah. like... Oh, like this is like a drug that like a like a less than 0.05 percent of the population relies on to survive, and the drug was forty dollars. We can you know mark it up to like nine hundred dollars because we can because yeah. there are no regulations. I think that we need to get better on the other side of the spectrum and being like citizen vigilantes to do the same thing. Like, to do what's to- here's an example. Well, I don't know if I should tell you because I'm trying to work on a project about it. Can I guess what it is? You can not if it's right? Yeah. Are you saying, like, kickstart a thing to get everyone's, everyone piles their money together and then does, like, what Scully does, like, buy something like that and then... Lowers the price? Yeah. I'm not thinking that, but that's a great example. Like, I do think we need to find, like, as, like, you know, liberal people who have empathy for other people, ways to, you know, use the loopholes in the system to right. take back, you know... What our our hopeful like rights of just like you know make like making sure people can survive in like a healthy liberal democracy or whatever. We just need to kind of troll the troll the trolls. Troll the trolls. Yeah, don't don't tell us what the specific idea is, but if you get it off the ground and make it happen, report back and we'll tell. I've been trying. There's a certain person by a certain name. I need to. Oh, I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> I'll tell you guys. I'm excited to talk about it, but I but you know. Anyway, 
Is Something's it in the works. Elon Musk, Barack Obama, no, 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 Warren. No, it's fine. We'll talk about it later. Cool. Off the air, guys, and then maybe later on in a future episode when it's a real thing. Is it LeBron? No. Is it? No. It's fine. We'll we'll talk. Is about it Lady it. Gaga? It's Lady Gaga, isn't no. it? No. The Rock. No. No. Oh, by the way, is it Malala? No. Is it? <laughs> Do you like how my voice just changes? Oh, Malala. Anywho. Um, not to change the subject, but I finally, I finally saw Jumanji last night. It's great. Because, Jumanji? Yeah. It had a bunch of past guests on the show. Um, Karen Gillan was phenomenal. Reese Darby has a pretty big part in it. I, I remember he was out there filming it for quite a while. Really fun. Wait, yeah. the first Jumanji? No, the one that just came out. The Rock and Jack Black. And oh, that Jumanji. It's, and it's good. good. Yeah, it's genu- I genuinely remember. I keep That's hearing cool. it's really good. And yeah, yeah, watch it for friends of the show, Karen Gillan and Reese Darby. Yeah, and doing that, cool. they're acting in it. I had some friends who posted how they enjoyed it more than the new Star Wars, and I was like, okay, well, this is worth. And it has like seventy six percent or something. Rock Tomatoes. And I was like, yeah, that's this is a fun, simple movie that doesn't have to like have the stakes of every huge fucking comic book thing yeah. where the universe is in peril. <laughs> I was like, no, it's a fun adventure in the jungle. And hey, you know what else is a fun thing? What's that? Possibly. A no lithium rechargeable proton battery oh. that could also help us on on that their energy thing. This is a story sent in by Justin Broad. Scientists have created the world's first rechargeable proton battery, a crucial step towards cheaper and more environmentally friendly energy storage. While the battery is just a small scale prototype, that's what it looks like there. It has the potential to be competitive with currently available lithium ion batteries. Um, the rechargeable battery created by researchers at RMIT University in Melbourne. That sounds like they're just trying to get some of that MIT glory. Oh, yeah. Just tagging on an extra letter. There was an RIT also in upstate New York. There is. I've been there. I've done comedy at that very place. Uh, It uses carbon and water instead of lithium. The lead researcher, Professor John Andrews, said as the world moved towards renewables, there would be a significant need for storage technologies that relied on cheap and abundant materials. Lithium-ion batteries are great, but they rely on ultimately scarce and expensive resources. Hydro is also a good technology, but suitable sites are limited and the cost may be high. The advantage is we're going to be storing protons in a carbon-based material, which is abundant, and we're also getting protons from water, which is readily available. The battery produces no carbon emissions. Emissions? Emissions? Well, I don't know what happened there. That's I'm losing my newsreader. It's early. It is early. Oh yeah, we lost an hour of sleep. Let's explain that science. Yeah. A whole hour of sleep disappeared, was stolen from us by the government. <laughs> the advantage is we're going to be storing protons in a carbon-based material, which is abundant, and we're getting protons from water, which is re- readily available. The battery produces no carbon emissions, and it can store electricity from zero emissions renewables. It could be commercially available within five to ten years. And when commercially available, it will be a competitor to the Tesla Powerwall, and eventually we'd hope we might find applications at the scale of the huge Tesla battery in South Australia, and even larger. I didn't know about this huge Tesla battery in South Australia, did you? I didn't know that. Is there one giant battery just sitting in the desert? Yeah, I'm going to look it up right now. Hey Matt, you excited for this comedy show downstairs we're about to go watch? I am, because there's food being cooked for us. (laughs) And... And I know, I know, I know you in particular, Andy. You uh, have big problems in the kitchen. I saw, Ugh. like most of your meals, I saw you trying to open just a, a can of lentil soup with a, with a corkscrew. That's not how it works. No, just all you have is methods for opening alcohol containers and survival goods. That's normally what you eat. I mean, when push when, when the shit hits the fan in L.A., I'm, you guys are going to be so jealous of me for having those canned things. But yes, uh, there's got to be a better way. That, yeah, you'd you think, because normally you, you just run into a restaurant and, like, give them your laptop and say, like, if you take this, can I have some food, please? You don't know how any of it works. I don't even know how goods are exchanged <laughs> for services, what currency is. No. Uh, there is, Andy! There is, there is, is there a, a wonderful new service called HelloFresh. Okay, okay, I'm listening. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients. Just so you can cook, eat, and enjoy. Sounds good. I mean, if I'm going to be honest here, I have to admit, I have actually made this on six occasions now. I've made six of the meals. They've all been great. They don't take very long. Uh, most recipes take only around 30 minutes. There's a lot of one-pot recipes for seriously speedy cooking and minimal cleanup. 
Yeah, I saw you because you're you're a meat eater. I'm not. I saw you preparing uh, the juicy Lucy burger. I had the juicy Lucy burger. With, I had the... the tomato onion jam and arugula salad. Mm-hmm. I had a really good beef chili. I forgot the name of it. I don't know if it's uh, necessary, but whatever. I made some good beef chili. Um, yeah, they're great recipes. They usually a- average out to less than ten dollars a meal. They make it very easy to cook delicious, balanced dinners. Uh, you yeah. can choose, like you said, between the, I have the classic, which includes meats, and you have the veggie plan. There's which, a family plan you can yeah, choose from. Yeah, the veggie me- veggie meals this week include caramelized shallot risotto with mm-hmm. lemony zucchini ribbons. Oh, those are good-looking ribbons. They are, aren't they? Just and so, you can uh, you, there's lots of different varieties of uh, of plans. You can choose your delivery day if what works best for your busy schedule. You can pause the account if you're going to be out of town, which we often are. Yes, so we're about to go on the road. You can just pause it. They won't keep sending food to you willy-nilly. <laughs> we'll have food piling up. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really cool. It arrives uh, at your door in, in an insulated, uh, recyclable package. And um, yeah, you've got all the pre-portioned ingredients, so you don't have to... You get to feel step- confident when cooking it, or these step-by-step instruction guides. The, the pic- I, I like that they give the instruction. It's all picture guides. It's a very simple picture-based yeah. descriptions. Everything's portioned out already so it's nice and nice and ready to go uh, and you know you, you learn some new recipes that you might not have tried otherwise you get a little bit outside of your comfort zone your eating comfort zone yeah once you once you find ones you like you just keep that keep that in your little recipe uh, what do people who cook a lot call the place where they keep recipes uh, right? memory they cook sure. their memory <laughs> they oh, you've got these keep nice in your recipe memory you've got these nice um, uh, uh, yeah I do I, I, I save the recipe cards that they give because it it, and reuse them. I've been going off book. I've been yeah, what, buying also, some of those ingredients yeah, on my yeah. own time as well, and making some of those little, in an a la carte fashion too. But yeah, you get you get three meals per plan. It's great. We like it. We recommend it. Uh, if you want to take part as well, you can get thirty dollars off of your first week of HelloFresh. It's a pretty big discount. It's a huge discount, so I highly recommend that. So yeah, so, go, go to HelloFresh.com and enter the code probably thirty to get that thirty dollars off your first week of HelloFresh. Oh, you can remember it pretty easily. It's the name of the first word of our podcast title, followed by thirty, which is the number of dollars that you don't have to pay if you use our code. It's a lot of dollars, not to pay. Yes, so again, uh, yeah, visit HelloFresh.com, enter the code PROBABLY30, and enjoy making some great food that's pretty easy and pretty quick and comes right to your door. All right, let's get back to Jenna. Are you sure the sound is good? It's fine. Yeah, yeah. We're just going to get you guys. You've heard Islands in the Stream. That just happened, right? Yeah. Uh, Kenny and Dolly. And there was a bit of a sing-along that went with that as well. And I don't know what this current song is, but you guys are just getting some free... I hope it sounds... It sounds fine through the headphones, so... Oh, okay, it'll then be, it'll be yeah. good. It's a 100-megawatt battery system that went online in December in South Australia. Um, it's a massive battery system that's lived up to its potential as a reliable source of clean energy. Uh, when the when a coal plant tripped on December 14th... I don't know how that happens, but I guess they got, like, a big trip switch on the coal plant. Tesla's Australian battery tip, stepped up within milliseconds to keep the grid running. Now, uh, now the giant Australian battery has begun to prove its financial worth. So yeah, I... oh, that's what it looks like. Cool. So it's attached cool. to a wind farm. Oh, okay. So yeah, because there's regular power plants have surges in production and and also there's surges in demand and dips in demand. So right. I guess having a massive battery system that can even that out. Yeah, I didn't. I think I've talked about this in the podcast before, but I only learned in the last like five or ten years that uh, yeah, not only do we have no, no place to store massive amounts of excess energy, but you know you have to turn off some some of the turbines in a wind farm when they're producing too much because there's no place for that to go, or you know you change the amount of water going through a dam at a hydroelectric plant because it's just like useless to be overproducing for the current demand. They had a. Holly and I were we had a little mini break in Palm Springs and there's loads of wind farms around there it's very yeah. windy and apparently they have that problem where they don't have anything to do with to the, so I ended up very like quite drunk in a lift telling the lift driver I'm sure he didn't want to know about the Denorwick pump storage system in Wales just a lake where you put water uphill <laughs> that's exactly what yeah, it is yeah. we've talked about it on the show yeah. before it's just one you know those little snippets of facts that you just remember from school like Oxbow Lakes that's another one 
Oh, yeah. Billabongs to our Australian listeners, I believe, right? No, I don't know. Is that what a billabong is? We've had this discussion. I we have definitely had this discussion. Lake. Maybe it's not. But an oxbow lake is where the, the bend in a river gets cut off because uh, because it becomes too large and water finds another part that cuts yeah. it off. Yeah, okay. We have had this exact conversation. And the, yeah, the Dinorwick pump storage system is two lakes in Wales, one's higher than the other. And when there's low energy demand, they use some of the excess energy to pump the water up the hill. And then when there's a sudden demand for energy, they switch it and it flows back down the hill, generating power. The, yeah, makes sense. Oh. So there we go. And what is your background in science? I did a degree in mathematics, oh. and Andy was an engineer. Mm-hmm. Right. And Andy, actually, a long time. Andy actually worked as an engineer for a bit. A bad engineer, yeah. That, even that's been 13 years now since my last real job. But did you go straight into comedy after comedy? Or where did you start comedy? I studied anthropology, which is a social science, and... That totally counts. I feel bad you didn't mention And then I got... I actually got into comedy by, like, studying the political economy of Chicago's improv scene my what? senior year of college. How did that work? Well, I loved improv, um... I got my my thesis got leaked and I ended up getting like excommunicated from Improv Olympic and that's how I got into stand up. Really? What kind of I mean I'm assuming you weren't trying to name names or do No, I, the the paper was very tame. I basically just talked about okay, it's going to get a little wonky. No, I this is comedy and science. You're talking about okay. studying science. So I talked about science. how I looked at Improv Olympic as kind of like a Reflection of a stalled affirmative action agenda in our political. A stalled affirmative action agenda. Yeah, improv is like a mirror for life. Okay. And I looked at like you know as like kind of like feminist Marxist political economy anthropology. It's always like it's not just gender. It's like race, class, gender, political economy. So I studied women and improv, but specifically white middle class women from the eighties to now, or to 2005, and then minority men and women in the same scene, and the thesis was basically, like, advocating affirmative action and improv. It was saying that, like, women have achieved all these things, but it's particularly, like, white middle-class women. Think Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, Stephanie Weir, Mm -hmm. uh, all those women that came out of Improv Olympic. Um, When did this happen? When... um, during the economic emergence of women from, like, you know, the 80s on upward, like, when, like, you, improv is like a luxury art form, you know, you okay. need to pay to play, right. and you first gain exposure to it in, like, liberal arts colleges, and, uh, you know, you don't make money from that art form for a long time, if not ever, so it is, like, a privileged thing, right, right. but it's also, like, funnels out to main, to, like, SNL and all these, so there is an economy, and so it was advocating, basically saying... I was talking to minority men and women in the, in the community and finding out their obstacles and, like, you know, what brought them to improv. And it was really... the One really interesting thing that I found out from setting it at that time in Chicago, the improv scene was, like, separate but equal. Minority men and women were feeling not supported in Chicago's scene, so they were creating their own way. So there would be, like, a couple, like, all-black improv groups. Like, like there was this all-Asian improv group, all-Latina, Latinx improv group and like they were and then Second City had this diversity outreach program where they were trying to build like an improv or like a a sketch theater in Bronzeville and Bronzeville people were like fuck you like we have stand up we're not going to pay $20 to go see your shows and enroll in these classes so it was just kind of like looking at it from that view and then also like if like there would be like a black person or like an Asian person in a group of all white people doing improv and they're playing to an all-white Chicago audience, uh, and like somebody suggests chopsticks, and then the scene becomes about a big blown-up Asian stereotype. They're not feeling supported in the community, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. so it was like all that. But then I also lived in that world for a year, and in anthropology, you do like it's called the ethnographic method, where you just kind of live in a community and observe it. And I wanted to do that into a community that I could assimilate because I didn't want to be like the other, just reporting on. Right, right people whose language I couldn't speak and so like I learned the language of improv mm-hmm. and I existed in that space and then I I did there was one tiny little like couple pages about how that world was like it's a educational environment it's a theater it's a bar teachers hit on students 
as women were like expected to be strong on stage but we're being objectified off stage and there's like a disconnect and I talked a little bit about sexual harassment in the workplace yeah and then Sharna the head of the theater just like canceled my show and like kind of blacklisted me how did it get leaked who, who... I was an idiot and I gave it to a friend and then they put um, it on my comedy website because I was like this nerdy kid and never a nerd but okay I was just this college kid watching everybody and taking notes all year so they're like what is she writing what is she writing and I uh, and I definitely used to but you're also taking classes and getting on stage well I didn't even mean to I, I showed up there and I was like can I just like pay for like a month pass to watch and I think Katie Rich was actually like oh, at the SNL writer right now, yeah, she was. She's so funny. She was working um, at the door there. It was either her, or, like Rachel Mason, was like, if you take, if you pay to take classes, then you can see all the shows you want for free. So that's how I engage, started engaging. Did you have an interest in improv prior to this? I had an interest in stand up, but Chicago didn't really have like a vibrant stand up community. Right. That without really. Patty Vasquez, who I don't know if you know. I know Patty, yeah. She was one of the only women doing stand-up I had seen at the time. Well, I, I think the the Lake Show, which we were talking about at the top of the show, was one of the real driving forces behind suddenly a whole... There was a whole generation of amazing comics who came out of that Chicago the years you were there. Yeah, like, well, the Lake Show was so short-lived, so I don't think it was... I, so, it was... When I got... This is like 2003, 4, 5... And I started doing stand-up in 2006. But, like, when I started doing stand-up, I was through people I had met from improv. But, like, you know, T.J. Miller was a stand-up improv person. And um, there was, like, Kamel. Nick Batterot. Was Bronger there at the time or no? He had just left. Yeah. Okay. So, Kamel and Johnny. Hannibal Kalkinane, was there, but Hannibal, Hannibal wasn't really doing... Hannibal wasn't doing improv. Right. But, um, yeah, no, I would... I mean, that's... Those were the big people like around and then like Beth Stelling and a few Beth, other people came like just afterwards Beth and Cameron and I I like started like six months before Beth right yeah but Beth and Cameron and I kind of came out at the same time um yeah it was cool and the stand-up scene was just and there was this guy who was like a registered sex offender I'm not gonna say his name but he was really nice to us creepy but nice he was putting up he was like the only person putting up women <laughs> on the show have, at Kitty Moon. Tell, he had to tell people. No, because he had a stage name. His last name was a different oh, name. Oh, oh. But he was like the first person who gave me stage time. And oh. he was like creepy, but no creepier than anyone else. And like his sexual offense was that he like like when he was eighteen he put on a hoodie and like grabbed women's crotches around a college campus. And then like a decade later he was like President? <laughs> no, right? He was actually funny, so sad. But he was like this like person who was like giving the young comics a spot and he was, you know, he was respectful enough compared to everyone else. Everybody was creepy. Yeah. But I do remember it's interesting cuz I so that paper talked about just like a little like light sexual harassment in this one environment and then a decade later you can google it Jezebel did a whole story about Improv Olympic and their sexual harassment problem mm-hmm. and Sharna's quoted as being like well, no, I never knew about this. And it's like, bullshit, Sharna, you totally knew about it. And you canceled my show, and then the reader wanted to, like, talk to me about it, and I got flack from women there who I admired and loved who came down on me and were like, we make our name on stage, not off stage. And I felt so ashamed that the paper, that this happened. And so I just kind of, like, got into stand-up. But then, this was so lame. Last week, Improv Olympic retweeted my Conan set and was like our friend uh, and that was the first moment that I was like okay <laughs> like, uh, it was a great set by the way <laughs> thanks but it was just like and I didn't want to because I didn't want to say like fuck you guys like I wish you had supported me because I loved I cried I was so sad I loved that world and but then I was like what if like an intern just tweeted it I don't want to get her or him yeah, in trouble yeah. and you know they just closed iOS I right? do I stopped by there right before they closed it and I mean, I get, I get Sharna. She's just trying to run a business. I totally get her point of view. Like, you don't want stuff, but I do think, like, you know, now there is more transparency with the internet than there was when I was coming up, and people have to confront the shit. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. it bites them in the ass, so. I mean, I guess I've, I've had to deal in a small, very small way with some of this stuff with the Bridgetown Festival. Sure, you know, just of course. Like, when you hear a rumor and someone is a possible performer like what's the protocol or what right well so 
I and I like evolved even in the past year on my feelings about this and I've been trying to joke about it a little bit but like when I was in college like I had so many friends who were date raped and like I remember trying to talk to the university because it wasn't like everybody it was like there are these serial predators that were just going after women who were like too drunk or like whatever like taking home women who were basically blacked out yeah, yeah and so i was like i went to the university like health like women's health department and i was like is there a way where like women can come in and if something happened they can co- confidentially give you a guy's name and then you flag him and if his name comes up three times you call him in for counseling like that is so innocuous that's a pretty easy uh-huh. to and they were like we can't violate student privacy like that and i'm like rape is violating student privacy and i think now schools are like finding better ways to address it but even in the adult swim show my first segment on campus rape is like a comedic way to try to address the issue because it's not it it, it's an epidemic one in four undergrads about like um will uh report being assaulted or raped and now I'm just pontificating. Oh, no. No, but I was on a comedy seller podcast and some guy fought me on that statistic and was like, actually, it's only six in a thousand. And the Federal Bureau of Statistics did a study that had six in a thousand report being assaulted or raped. But as we're talking about science and methodology, their methodology was cold calling people. <laughs> and the way they determined sexual assault or rape was not if you were drunk and blacked out or drug like it, it didn't include incapacitated rape right which is how most rapes happen on yeah. college campuses it's not just a sober guy assaulting you it's like that gray area thing so and I didn't know this at the time of being like attacked on this comedy seller podcast you know and uh, well, I've heard that that I've heard people get up and arms about that statistic. Yeah, but the other so thing we, is, it's like, dude, you want to be the guy who's fighting me over rape stats on a podcast about consent? Right. And then we found out at the end of the podcast, it's all online. I can't believe they put it online. This guy admitted later in the podcast that like he went through a period where he would get wasted and black out and wake up next to women wondering if he hurt them. So those are who are fighting rape stats. Wow. Just so you guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I listened to that episode. I, I like that podcast. It's actually really. It was Noam's podcast. I know and the, the po- and the cool thing is, as right wing as Noam is, to be talking about. I don't know. Ken- who, I mean, Noam's the owner of the Comedy Cellar. Oh, he's someone yeah. I've only hung out with him a few times, but he's someone I genuinely like. Like the first time we met was having an argument. I got into the Comedy Cellar through an argument with him about Brexit. Oh, like okay. we got. Like we, I was. You're good enough argue that you can. Perform. He's well, very it, like it was right more, wing, but he also right, doesn't mind being challenged, which is nice. No, it, which is one. I really like. I really, and it's one of the things that, when I have listened to that podcast, I actually like it a lot because he is someone who is definitely on the other side of the political spectrum to me. But he's also open to ideas, and also he's Israeli, and he just loves arguing. Yeah. So like fundamentally, <laughs> he loves too. people clashing with him. Like it was. Um, uh, like, like we, I, I was just down at the cellar and I was talking to a friend of mine who was on the show. I hadn't ever played that room at that point, and we just, uh, and he was there at the table as well, and we got into this sort of argument about Brexit. I, he ended up like, I ordered some food, and he, and he was like, I, I got this, I got this one. I'm about to be mean to him. <laughs> <laughs> and we chatted for a while, and, uh, uh. And after a while, it just like I can't remember how it sort of came up, but I ended up just going like after like can I can I do a guest set here? And that's cool. That's and cool. That's, that's how my first guest set at the cellar happened. I feel like we just gave listeners some better like comedy advice than you get on your, <laughs> argue on your with, WTFs and your yeah, yeah. go to the comedy cellar and argue fun. with no. Yeah. I mean, it was cool that he was entertaining. Well, I think that they had had a conversation about like Me Too and consent without women, and then they decided to have one. Where they brought women into the fold. And it was really cool because, like, I, they were, like, kind of, like, waking up in real time. Like, it was right after the Aziz article came out. And, you know, my my feelings on that evolved as well. But there was this whole idea about, like, you know, sometimes women or people, men too, can't say no. And Noam was like, what do you mean? What do you mean you can't say no? What do you mean you can't physically say no? And he's getting on my case. And then this woman who was also on the podcast who's, like, a model that they... they I think they brought her on because they thought she and I would be, like, at odds, which we weren't, of course. <laughs> but she was, like... 
Well, for example, I was molested by my father from 12 onwards, and I couldn't say no. And then everybody just shut the fuck up and wow. let that sit. And it's like, yeah, okay, like, you don't know what people are bringing into situations during, like, a first hookup or whatever when you don't know somebody. And the goal is to just, like, have affirmative consent and everybody being really excited to be there. And we should just be, like, a little bit more mindful, men and women, about, like, when we're hooking up with a stranger, like, what they want and what they don't want. And just, like, you know, exercise intuition or, like, if you aren't an intuitive person, maybe, like... Make sure that they say yes. Like, you know, just be a little bit. Yeah. So that was like the whole, it was interesting. It was cool to be even talking about it. And I was happy that they had us on there. Did they have space for a correction afterwards when you, with that new stat? No. So I <laughs> emailed Gnome and was like, that one study that that guy emphatically had, he was such an expert on this one. And I was like, so I Googled it and then I wrote Gnome you know, about the methodology of the study and everything. And because I was also freaked out because on my adult swim show, I even say during the show, I was like about one in four. And I had my researchers fact check that a thousand times because I was like, I know I'm going to get like dinged on this if it's not right. Right. One in four, what was the word you used? I said about one in four undergrads, male and female, report being raped or sexually assaulted on college campuses. Most studies, and there have been many with very different methodologies, land on that number that doesn't even include unreported. So it's about, and groping could be assault, you know? So it is a loose definition of assault, but they're believing the people who say they've been assaulted. Um, There's a really good Quartz article about the number of false rape accusations, and it's like about 3%. And it's a really great, like, article just about, it just, like, you walk away from that being like, oh, I'm going to believe victims, which we never do. And I even had a, like, I wasn't even totally aware of that until, like, this past year, to just, like, believe people when they tell you. Yeah. Uh, I'll find that article and I'll put that in the show notes. Um, I had a question. <laughs> to get back to the... Um, Science? The, no, well, st- still within comedy. We brought Jen on to just talk about race. <laughs> the anthropology part of... When you were studying I.O. in Chicago, so you said it's part of the methodology to embed, embed yourself with whatever group you're studying. But are you supposed to be telling them what you're doing? Or is no, that no, you're just, it's uh, like, that, a... Not, there's not like an ethical obligation? Well, there have been, to be, so, like, there have been so many like historically in anthropology problematic experiments where like a white man goes to some, to like the Yamamoto uh, in Venezuela to study them and like... You know, either lies or doesn't get it or whatever. Like, there's just just to be so clear, they don't do improv out in like Venezuela. Like well. They do probably now. <laughs> Venezuela is so fucked up. Like, right once now. the white man gets there, suddenly improv follows. <laughs> no, not improv, but just studying <laughs> no, people. Like, you know, um, so the, everybody knew I was there writing a paper and I was interviewing people and taking notes, but also like it's called like a participant observer. I was also participating in the community and learning the community. I originally, I'd studied abroad in, I was in Santiago in Chile and like the year before and I wanted to do my, because every senior for anthropology, like the program does like a year long thesis and I wanted to like look at gypsy diasporas in South America because I was always fascinated with just like this people that has historically been oppressed that doesn't have like central gathering places, places but has like been able to like maintain an identity and a culture and like a language and I like went over to some like I don't even know if gypsy is like the political like Romani. Rom- oh yeah, <laughs> it's like racist. I, I don't, but I, mean, I don't understand that either. Because how is there a group that is not together but still has a common? Exactly. So I went over. Well, there. Yeah, there's a whole. You know, I don't know enough, but I went over and like this woman like tried to scratch my face because I like she's like they wanted money and I was like I don't have any money on me. I just want to like <laughs> such a little white girl. And then I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna study the Romani. I'm gonna go. To Chicago, Chicago and study improv. <laughs> I just felt like that community would have been a little bit more accessible. And then it turns out they weren't. Oh, <laughs> like well, they were, and like you know, it, it was a cool. I, remember I had the coolest teachers, and just kind of you guys know now. It was before like the big improv boom, but like when I first discovered it, it was like you're wait, so you can be your own writer, director, performer at the same time. Like right. the creative potential of that felt like. You're basically an adult getting to play make-believe. I mean, nothing was cooler. It was so much fun. Um, 
While we're talking about corrections, there were two corrections that came in in the last couple of weeks. I really hope this episode is less than I think it is. I'm pretty sure it is. Um, a couple of corrections came in this week uh, before we wrap it up. Firstly, Manuel Royale tweeted at us because I said that the boy in a Christmas carol buys a goose. He doesn't. He buys a turkey. He buys a turkey. The boy in a Christmas carol buys a turkey, not a goose. For some reason, that's often misremembered. Um... And then he tweeted again to say, okay, this was bugging me. There is a mention of a Cratchit goose in the Spirit of Christmas Present vision when Scrooge buys them a turkey instead. That might be considered a change in the timeline. More to the point, turkey was a more exotic bird. Okay. And, and then he comments about the Tadakan, which was the latest version of it. Which, um, just to listen to it clear, is not an actual genetic <laughs> hybrid, but just cooking uh, We don't know. We don't know for sure. Um, and then also, our... Uh, our go-to um, geographer and geologist uh, Beth Johnson messaged in because we asked what the difference is between geology, geology and physical geography. Geology starts at the Earth's surface and goes down, and physical geography starts at the Earth's surface and goes up. up. Oh, that's great! All right? That's obviously simplistic, but it helps me. You'll also notice there's a bit of overlap, which is where my field of glacial landforms fits in. Uh, physical geography as distinct from political geography. No, yeah. no, geology versus geography. Yeah. But Ge- I mean, like, geology geography. Oh, oh, political I geography. Was, when, I, when I made fun of geography in the past episode, I was thinking it was just about, like, maps of countries. Yeah. And I was like, once you've learned all the, all the what countries... What about topography? That's a, topography is a subset of geography? I guess. That's just kind of the surface? Yeah. Or, like, because top, changes? topography wouldn't necessarily be, be political. Topography is the arrangement of natural and artificial feet physical features of an area. So yeah, that would be a subset of geography. Not to be confused with topology, which is sort of a math thing, which is kind of like maps, to- but... Uh, topology is, is definitely a mathematical I mean, thing. It is a math branch thing, of mathematics. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's they- sort of like... it's And then stenography, of- which is map making. Which one? Stenography. Or cartography, right? What's stenography? It's like right, it's court stenography. Oh, stenography. Court, <laughs> stenog- can I, okay. I wanted to. Just, I just wanted to keep right? going. I wanted to keep the bit going, but I fucked uh, up because bibliography, which is what we don't include at the end of our. No, I guess yeah, our, cartography is map making. Stenography is court. What is stenography? Illustrating court, stenog- court stuff. Just, uh, taking notes. Is stenography. Steno mean. What does steno mean? Mean as a prefix. Yeah, it come. Well, I'm going to look up the stenography etymology. Uh, excellent. Steno, a brand of pens, also? Okay, so... Oh, maybe it is. It comes from narrow. The mm-hmm. steno bit means narrow. Oh. And graphy is writing. Or drawing. Writing. Is that, like, just because when humans developed, like, pens and pencils? But stenography and is, like, points? wait, a court stenographer, are they drawing the things, or are they writing no, the drawing? Who use, aren't they the ones who use the, like, shorthand uh, tiny keypad that doesn't have a full set of letters? Yeah, it's, yeah. Like a, it's like a special type of typewriter that you can type extraordinarily quickly on. That I think it has... It has can you just that... record? Well, this is before. Well, but then... then... But wait, what about who... Don't the people that do the illustrations... Oh, aren't that's those... different. That's a... That's a courtroom artist, I think, right? Yeah, that's a courtroom artist. That's not so, a aren't some courtrooms... I mean, there's, you, can have, you can have cameras in some courtrooms now. Like, what are the... Is it just court by court? Oh, they just, interesting. So I think they used to not be allowed to have cameras. That's why they had to have... That's... That's sketchy. That's what the... By definition. That's what the stenographer machine looks like. Those things. Oh, interesting. And it's... Yeah, it's like a phonetic typist. So... Yeah. They can get well over a hundred words a minute comfortably. Be a fun thing to take up. I wonder if Jesse has any stenography key typewriters. Our, our other host, Jesse, you know Jesse Case, don't you? Yeah. Maybe? Yeah, he was our, th- our third host for a long time. He's out in Nashville now, but he collects and fixes up typewriters. It's like, wow. It's weird. Not weird, but you know, a side obsession it is. And uh, I wonder if he's got a steno machine. He's done stuff for, you know, Tom Hanks is also like typewriter obsessed. No, I didn't know that. I think, didn't he make some kind of uh, typewriter app where you can mimic different eras of typewriters with... Uh, anyway, but I think Jesse, <laughs> Jesse worked on a typewriter for Tom Hanks at some point. Cool. I might squeeze in this one last story. Yeah. Just because... I, I might not even put this in the show notes. It's at the top of the, it's at the, top of the show notes now. Oh, at the very top of the page, Andy. Mm-hmm. But climate change, because this relates to everything Aww. we've talked about so far impacts women more than men. Everything does. Women are more likely than men to be affected by climate change, studies show. 
UN figures indicate that 80% of people displaced by climate change are women, and roles of primary caregivers and providers of food and fuel make them more vulnerable when flooding or drought occur. The Paris Agreement has made specific provision for the empowerment of women, recognizing that they are disproportionately affected. Um, or yes. In Central Africa, it's kind of a bummer of a story, but uh, but fuck it. Uh, well, it's like envir- It's also like environmental racism, you know, like poor people always like. It is a hundred percent because yeah. apart from the fact that some people with fancy coastal like beachfront property are going to be affected. The but that's vast, like their second home. Yeah. They're like, oh, I have to build up some more reinforcements. The vast majority of people who are negatively impacted by climate change are, are farmers, nomadic communities. Yeah, um, poor and women, yeah. In Central Africa, when 90% of Lake Chad has disappeared, I did not know that, mm-hmm. nomadic and indigenous groups are particularly at risk. As the, lake, as the lake shoreline receives, women have to walk much further to collect water. Uh, in dry season, men go to the towns, leaving women to look after the community. Explains Hin... Hindu uh, Umaru Ibrahim, who's coordinator at the Association of Indigenous Women and People of Chad. The dry season is now becoming lo- longer. Women are working harder to feed and care for their wo- families without support. They become more vulnerable. I really wish I hadn't done this story t- at the you very can, end of the podcast. So I'll, find, a, I'll just... find the happy one for the very end. I'll find yeah. the happy one. I think I know a good one, so keep going. What have you got? You got a fun story to finish this off, Andy? Uh, well, I mean, I think anytime you find 1.5 million penguins you didn't know were around, that's good, right? Oh, Extra penguins? Oh, well, we don't want to know they're around because they were hiding from us, I bet. <laughs> yeah, uh, scientists just discovered 1.5 million penguins they didn't know existed in Antarctica. Um, they were tipped off by large clusters of penguin poop seen on satellite images. I think the story was sent in by John Vink. That sounds right. Um, so yeah, the population had been declining due to climate change, but they, as, as I said, they just found this super colony that was previously unknown of Adelie penguins on the Danger Islands, like an awesome name, a set of remote icy islands on the northeastern side of the Antarctic Peninsula according to a study released Friday. Basically, these islands were covered in penguins. Michael Polito, an assistant professor of oceanography and coastal sciences at Louisiana State University, wow. and co-author of the paper, told BuzzFeed News. I just showed Jenna the picture. Uh, Look yeah, at so that. Many penguins. It's a lot of penguins. So many penguins. So many penguins. Um, Adeli, if I'm saying that right, I don't know. Penguins only exist in Antarctica, and their populations have seen a marked decline along most of the western side of the peninsula, where rising temperatures tied to man-made climate change. Aww. Theoretically, no. Um, have melted sea ice. But we didn't What's know- one thing we can all do to stop climate change? Not use straws? <laughs> is, that a, is that a big thing? No, I don't know. I'm trying not to now. That <laughs> so is definitely... Um, Hug a climate I don't know if it's climate scientist. change, but it's definitely... I don't know if it's sort of climate affecting, but it's definitely pollution affecting, like plastic straws. It's all connected. Thousands of plastic... You know, I, was, uh, I was in Central America recently, and a lot of places down there make it a point of only having paper straws because um, I think like sea turtles and some kind of... Yeah, because it, it just ends up in the water supply or ends up in, this, in the oceans, and it just doesn't decompose that kind of plastic for... But also some animals eat them or get them stuck in... I, I don't know what straws specifically would do. I think, but sea turtles in particular, I think, are at risk with straws. Switch to paper straws or no Wouldn't straws cool at all. we had any foresight on every level? If humans just, like, <laughs> had any foresight. Anyway. Yeah, it is just like the... I... Uh, that's my main problem with any libertarian view. Like, the market will work it out. No, it won't. Um, it, libertarian, it, like, and I'm not the first person that said this, but I'm trying to work out a joke, but it is like astrology for men, and I don't mean to gender it. <laughs> that's it. That's the joke. That's funny. I don't mean to that's gender great. it. No, don't apologize. That's but, like, joke. the markets determine wages, you motherfucker. No, they don't. You know what I mean? Like, anyone who doesn't believe in minimum wage is a cancer to society. <laughs> that was a joke. Like, oh, it's such a cancer. Oh, oh, like the astrological sign. There's like, gonna be a setup, and that's gonna be the punchline if, it ever, if I ever do it. Yeah, the fucking great. Definitely developed that. It's a lot of things. Very fun. Jenna, where can our listeners find out about you and everything you're doing? On Twitter. I'll put my shows... Oh, I'm performing in uh, Washington, D.C. March 20th. It was like a last-minute show at the D.C. Comedy Loft. Awesome. Yeah, I'm speaking on the Supreme Court steps in the morning with a bunch of cool women. Yeah, very cool. Uh, there's like a ruling, I think, on pregnancy crisis centers, which are the stupidest thing ever, and fake places that should be shut down. Those are like right-wing things to come They're like you. fake women's health clinics that like mislead pregnant women into going there, and then they just like shame them. And oh, yeah, these things are fucking terrible. And you don't need like... 
There's no law stopping you from just setting no, something up. Yeah, and, and you don't need like a, I forget what it's called, but like the, you don't need like a certificate of anything to run it just, things. It, it looks, it looks like it looks entirely like a center that could provide abortion, and you get checked in by someone who's wearing like a lab coat who and looks they give like you a nurse. False information, and they're not accredited, and they're totally allowed to be like fake doctors. It's, it's just a so straight up Christian and there are anti-abortion. Way more of them than there are like abortion clinics in the country. It, it is to uh, like, like Christian conservatives what the psychiatry and industry of death museum is to Scientology. I don't, I, yeah, to an extent, <laughs> but like even it would be even more so that like if the if the Scientologists actually set up a clinic on the high street, it's like free counseling. And yeah, then you it's get there, really it's dangerous a- because, like, you know, like pregnant women, whether or not they have abortions, they like need medical advice that's not fake. Right. Yeah. Well, so- that's the other thing. Apart from, I mean, like, firstly, I think abortion should be entirely legal and readily accessible. But the, also, the number of things that Planned Parenthood and these other clinics do. Aside from Medical just services and, and yeah, um, it's yeah. really bad. We're like that's a whole other podcast and thing, but it's just yeah. Anyway, so that's March twentieth. <laughs> Do that March twentieth. Go and see the talking on the steps of the building, Capitol yeah, building on the, Liz in the day. Winstead is like oh, I think awesome. hosting it with like Lady Perch Justice and Mayroll, and then that night is a stand-up show. Go to both of those. I know we have listeners who are in or around DC. Check that out. Watch Soft Focus. Watch Soft Focus. All Thanks, along. guys. It's very, very funny. So nice very to cool. catch up and so- have it be recorded. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jenna. Uh, as always, probablyscience.com, Twitter at probablyscience, individually at Andy T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen. Yep. Uh, donation button on probablyscience.com. We'll thank the donors next week and, uh, and use HelloFresh and use our code, which is... Probably 30. Check it out. <laughs>